This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome back to Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Sandy Hunt. Uh, I'd like to welcome to the show Joey Hunter, founder and CEO of Sustainatech and WSII, that's the Wharton Social Impact Initiative's Nazarian Social Innovator in Residence. Welcome to the show, Joey. Oh, thank you so much. Joey, it's a welcome back for you. We've had the pleasure and opportunity of working with you for six, seven, seven eight years. years yeah. now. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Keeps going. Um, but truly, since WSII, you know, ha- had begun and had the chance, we've had the chance to see your entrepreneurial ventures evolve. Uh, if we have listeners who remember back in the archives our conversations with you a few years ago, why don't you, you know, start by giving us a little bit of an update on, you know. Who, who you were then and what your business has evolved to now. Sounds good. So in previous years, around the formation of WSII, I had founded the world's first green carnival. All the Sustainable. Rides, sustainable. The world's first green carnival. All the rides run on waste vegetable oil, wind, and solar power. And sustainable uh, scaled and got quite big. I developed it just to give people a great time around sustainability, try to reduce the fear that folks can have about changing the way they do things, whether that be electric cars or more insulation in their house or solar panels. And that organization is running quite well. There's a management team intact, directors, executive directors. It's alive and well and running to this day. One of the odd spin-outs of Sustainable was Sustainatech, which is an agriculture technology company, which I'm the CEO of. Sustainatech builds modular indoor farms to grow food in places in the world that it's very hard to grow food. Whether it's the eternal winter in northern Alberta, Canada, or very dry places, or folks, places where there's not uh, good access to water, we built a scalable indoor farming solution that we are, are now um, scaling around the globe to get at the purpose of local fresh food in places where it's hard to grow food. So... Before we fully get into Sustainatech, going to Sustainable, yeah. um, for our listeners, you know, who may not have, you know, maybe they joined us because they got SiriusXM in their car this year and they, they didn't get the chance to catch your first segment because uh, it was so many years ago already. Yes. Again, many sorry, years ago. It's, it reminds me how long we've been doing the show, how long we've been at WSII. Yes. So that's why I bring it up. But um, a, a Sustainable Carnival, you know, it's not like, hey, we're going to, you're going to go take this ride, you know, that is sustainable water or something it's actually like hey this is a ferris wheel running on this type of energy is that sort of exactly okay yeah so we used the carnival to make physical and active some of these technical uh innovations that can be very heady and technical and go right over people's heads so instead we would literally collect waste vegetable oil from the restaurants in a city We'd render it into biodiesel on site in a live demonstration with participation from our guests and power up massive carnival rides. And we'd be making enough power for 10,000 homes on a given site. There'd be 20 to 30,000 people on the site per day. And it was a, it, you know, it's a big, it, it's a full state fair sized uh, suite of attractions. And we'd have Lego uh, do co-installations to animate wind power for people. People could build wind turbines and test them in a wind tunnel. We'd have Tesla Roadsters there for people to climb in and out of and really see the cutting edge of, of transport. We tried to make real and tangible renewable energy and renewable technologies. We used to say, 
we connect people to sustainability by the seat of their pants. Ah, I like that. <laughs> but it's cool because um, I, I do think that even on our show, if you're listening, you know, it, some of these things seem so far away and it's really hard to wrap your head around what some of our entrepreneurs are talking about because they're really technical innovations. And I loved the idea of, you know, the carnival to be able to interact with sustainability in that way. Absolutely. And so um, on Sustainatech, we're talking about agriculture now. Indeed. And so you sort of took this, I mean, your background in sustainability and and, and as an entrepreneur. And, and this is something, you know, as you've described it, and we'll get more into that, like it in general, the concept I think I've heard before, but I feel like you're really cracking a nut or solving a problem that had been uh, really an important challenge for the industry in terms of really success and scalability. Agreed. So Sustainatech spun out of Sustainable in the following way, which is which is how they're connected. We would bring Sustainable to cities, and the mayor and counselors would come down and say, we have this problem. We want to solve it. Is there a sustainable technology that can help? And one city said, we're a food desert. We have no local agriculture. Can you help us? And that led us to build the first indoor agriculture prototype inside of shipping containers. So we built these vertical farms inside of shipping containers back in 2012, deployed them in 2013. We were producing food in this community when it was minus 40 outside. And we took the learnings of that project and spun it out into Sustainatech. And then we started to get Sustainatech funded and with contracts to help scale the company. Over the next four or five years, we innovated a lot to try to make this technology actually profitable. It can be very expensive to farm indoors. There's lots of ways to just spend too much money doing it, which I think a lot of our competitors are, are having trouble with. So we focused on leaning it way out. How do you crush the cost of the components? How do you get the overall cost of the technology way down? Also, um, how do you produce efficiently? So for, for us, a big push has been electrical efficiency, the big input. The big inputs in indoor farming are labor and electricity. And in fact, if you get the labor piece right through mechanization, pretty soon your top cost is energy and power. So we've undergone major efficiency initiatives. And I'm, I'm happy to say we've gotten to the place now where one of our containerized indoor farms can be powered just by covering the top of the sea can with solar panels. And so paint a picture for our listeners of this. So a shipping container is how big? Sure. Usually a shipping container is eight feet wide, about eight and a half feet tall, and about 40 feet long. Okay. So, mm -hmm. all right. I'm a just, sea you know. can. Uh, okay. but, but the way we've done it is to stitch them together into complexes. So our farms are 20 and, and more containers tied in together. So you'll have 15 production containers. You'll have packaging and processing containers. <clears throat> oh, interesting. Walk-in coolers, a loading dock, a laboratory, a nutrient house. It really is a contained farm. And that's another one of the cool things. It's mobile. Yep. We can dissemble the farm and move it down the road. Let's say economics shift. Let's say you get a certain type of new power installation in Texas, a new solar farm, and mm -hmm. they're selling power cheaper than any other state, and we could move an entire deployment over there. Uh, further still, let's say there's an emerging market in a given country on the African continent that needs 10,000 new jobs, and we can dispatch containers by the 100 <laughs> to emerging markets. Given that they're grid independent, we've discovered a, 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 a business global development play to be able to take these grid-independent indoor farms. And when you say grid-independent, this means they can they can be put anywhere. There's no reliance on internet, on, on a power source. All that. 
Excellent. Yes, they can. you can drop them in a field and, and boot them up. You do need the water to fill the tanks initially, but after that, they recirculate and filter all of their water. So there's no ongoing need so for water. So there's no need for, for water after no. that initial wow, that's right. drop. And, and that's where we realized that one of the great, the great places to put this technology to work was where we'd hoped it would get to, which is to help certain societies leapfrog into indoor agriculture, where land may not be available, where property rights may not be discernible, where the disease uh, cycle in the soil can never be broken due to climate, where water may be a real issue and water may be impure. So this is where we're finding a real home for this mobile indoor farming platform is in emerging markets and developing economies. Yeah. So, so it wouldn't be a, a conversation with an entrepreneur without talking about ha- really hard stuff yes. and failures. Um, so this sounds almost too good to be true. Understood. Wow, you've just you know you've you've figured out how to take a product, put it in a shipping container, no water use, you've maximized efficiency. What's you know what's holding this back? What are the market challenges still being faced that make this you know really well-designed, successful tool, uh, you know, still a challenge as an entrepreneur. Yeah, understood. It's still a new technology. So on just the first order of complexity and what we're dealing with is it's a new technology. And by virtue of that, there's the perception of risk that it's a new technology. Not only that, Silicon Valley investors have typically gotten very wealthy on software plays. And so to tear off into a hardware play, we are a very high capital cost business. Most of our money goes towards assets. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, really, it's about bank financing eventually. But because it's a new technology, there's no bank that really wants to touch a brand new technology. We need to find this educated and inspired set of investors that are aware of the field, that that believe in the long term. And we go that extra step to say, this is to us is about a global purpose. This is about a large scale, uh, high growth impact play and uh, made of durable assets. And mm-hmm. so we're, we've been able to inspire capital. To We're venture-backed and we're well-capitalized, and some of our competition is as well. And, and I think the ongoing challenges are it's really not vertical and indoor farming companies versus each other. It's these companies versus the traditional way of doing it, which is in the field with a tractor. And there's no indoor farming company that can compete with those economics. I don't care what anybody says. How big of an indoor farming company, whether they've raised two hundred million or three hundred million, they are probably five to ten times more expensive than field grown produce. Mm-hmm. This is another thing that we've had to address, which is really which crops is it appropriate to grow in such an expensive context? Yeah, what's the answer? Yeah, so for us, the answer has been more high-value crops that are harder to grow and finickier than, say, lettuces and kales. I I don't see how the indoor farming industry is ever going to compete on salad mixes. It doesn't Mm -hmm. doesn't make sense. You can grow salad mixes in, in a greenhouse just fine. Tarragon, okay. basil's finicky as heck. You you get basil slightly wrong, and the leaves get all upset. Like, I can't tell you how many aspirational uh, basil plants I've purchased only to see them fail within days. They're very sensitive, yeah. and and then furthermore, there's certain medicinal plants that we've been mm. talking to nutraceutical companies about. We've even been talking about wasabi, mm-hmm. wasabi, ginseng, lavender. So, Got it. so and high, then, higher value, yes, and you know, more more nuanced to and, produce. And, and the cool thing is these are quite labor intensive crops and there's a competitive edge in emerging economies. They still have affordable labor. Now you can in- increase the amount of take home pay that somebody takes home by a lot and still be way more competitive than growing in say New Jersey mm-hmm. where you have to pay somebody 18 to 20 bucks an hour by the time you calculate all the costs of employment. So choosing the crops carefully 
choosing the contexts carefully is opening up these very profitable niche opportunities. And by niche, I mean like 10 to $50 million opportunities. I don't think there's a winner-take-all situation in indoor farming. I think that agriculture is one of the oldest industries, and it's very specialized. I think it's more about finding the right fit for the technology for a number of reasons, and not just sort of one-size-fits-all mega-scale facilities. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, and we're talking with Joey Hundert, founder and CEO of Sustainatech. And Joey, I'm kind of curious how you think about yourself as an entrepreneur. Are you a tech entrepreneur? You know, are you a farmer? You know, are you operating indoor farms now? Or who? So there's sort of like this question around who are you, and like how do you categorize you and your business? And then who's the client? Yes, I'm a I am a technical person. I love sustainability from a uh, the standpoint of what it can mean for society in terms of durability in the face of climate change. I also love sustainable technology from the standpoint of decentralizing capital. So when I think about how you lift 3 billion people up in terms of quality of life, my concern has been you can't necessarily build 10 billion and 50 billion dollars centralized mm. infrastructure in emerging economies it's going to be decentral what makes me so inspired and happy about the way sustainable technology has been going is it's been getting cheaper and cheaper in smaller and smaller pieces uh, the the performance of solar is is you know the stuff of storybooks and i think that society's going to come around to seeing the great solar boom of the next 5 and 10 years where more people will access power for the first time in the world from decentralized sustainable technology than from centralized age-old infrastructural technologies of the Industrial Revolution. That, to me, is super inspiring, and I want to help push some of the key areas. What's beautiful about indoor agriculture is that it's built over top of the LED chip. The LED chip is the most efficient lighting device that humanity's ever come up with. The beauty about the LED is it's got many more turns of efficiency ahead of it. There's many more developments in the LED to make it more efficient. And then you pair the LED and the solar panel. And by the way, that would be Hates' law paired with Swanson's law for the geeks out there. <laughs> then, you have a, <laughs> then you have a very virtuous cycle where you can afford to create controlled agricultural environments for ever cheaper costs into the future. And there's no end, there, there's no end in sight on the development of Swanson's law, which is to say there's nothing in the way of solar getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. There are some breakthroughs that still need to happen for the LED for it to get uh, uh, more than three times cheaper than it is right now. And that doesn't even matter. You can create such inexpensive indoor spaces to grow secure, reliable food that doesn't care what it's doing outside. It doesn't care that the climate's become unstable. And so that, to me, is inspiring. I wanted to help be a part of that uh, breaking open of the field and, and, and help accelerate that. So I personally, I'm about the improvement of quality of life for people writ large on the planet. My original theory back when I was 19 was that sustainable technologies could be used to increase quality of life for people through enterprise to lift up quality of life for billions of people. I think that that assumption is multi-generational, but mm. is being proven true. And I love having any kind of a role um, on scaling those ideas. And typically ideas that I've seen scale, scale fastest through enterprise and venture, which is why I've chosen entrepreneurship and venture as the vehicle for these ideas. Yeah, makes total sense. So I'm curious, when you think about um, this huge positive disruption to these communities mm -hmm. and the process of being an entrepreneur in Canada who's, you know, exploring the impact of, you know, dropping one of these uh, communities of shipping containers into, name, name your... Kenya, Ivory Coast, Okay, sure. great. Into Kenya. 
How do you start to get your head around and start to study all of the impacts? Because I'm thinking yeah. questions like, okay, it's making a lot of sense that you're producing sage and you know a more a fickle, uh, you know, higher value plant than salad lettuce. But what can be consumed is the plant that, that just these are sold and it's for economic benefit. Tell us a little bit about sort of the anthropological side of, of truly understanding the full social yeah. impact of how this is going to change a community. You got it. The approach is very slow, <laughs> methodical, and careful. It's something that what we have uh, been looking at for a long time and now that the company is is stable. Uh, we have stable cash flows, stable revenues. The company is solid. Now we can get at this piece that we really always were inspired to get after. It starts with a, a long study phase, working with groups that have an international reach, working with groups that are in the field and on the ground, working with the foundations who've been funding this kind of work for decades, working with the banks that are interested in increasing access to capital in these environments. It's a, it's a massive yeah. multi-stakeholder project just to study it because I refuse to disrupt the market in a bad way. That 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 is not acceptable to me. Do you think I, it's possible to only do it in a good way? I don't know. Okay. I think it's, it's, it's the sort of thing that will be the product of great thinking by dozens of people mm-hmm. to find out if that's possible because this is not about a labor extraction program. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of horticultural companies in the world that set up a, a they've got a presence in the Netherlands and they've got a presence on the African continent yep. Yep. and they extract labor and hey that's business it's helping to stabilize it's creating jobs we want to go a step further to make sure that people can become credit worthy that there's financial institutions that are ready to finance these farmers mm-hmm. to own these containers we don't want to own the containers over time we want that ownership to shift over to, to the buy. local population and to be the start of capital formation in an agricultural context in some of these countries where accessing capital is just unfathomable and so that that's more so it's a larger systemic play around capital formation it just happens to be through agricultural technology can we do it in a beneficial way? We're going to find out. On the way to there, we keep scaling our farms. We're selling farms globally to produce companies. We keep scaling the business with durable cash flow, durable revenue streams, and, and in, in compounding sales. However, we study in the meantime whether or not we can get at this in a beneficial mm-hmm. way because I, I absolutely recognize that it is a terribly nuanced and extremely complex game when getting into anybody else's economy. Yeah. And I always, you know, the, a big question is always, where are the edges of your responsibility? And we talk with a lot of entrepreneurs and, and, and you know, and financing groups as well about this. You know, yeah. you're talking about helping people become credit worthy. How much do you want to work with local banks to ensure that? How yeah. much are you concerned about the health of employees? Do you provide health care? Do you build a clinic on site? Child care? It's, those edges are so, so, so blurry. And it's just a... Um, it's a huge question for every social entrepreneur. I agree. I agree with that. So for me, I uh, I know through launching and scaling companies, you have to pick so carefully, um, despite what one's heart is saying. Oh, that my it's not, gosh. You know, yeah, yeah. Usually a great company will get at one of those things mm-hmm. right. um, and scale. I worry that when you try, whenever I see an entrepreneur, when I get pitched as an investor and <clears throat> the entrepreneur tells me about the five different fronts that they're going to be active yep. on, I get really concerned. I, I think it takes so much skill and nuanced nuanced decision making to move the lever on any one of those things. So mm-hmm. 
my hope would be that we discover what it's natural for us to include in terms of the edges that we seek to have an impact on Mm -hmm. and where we can't at least do some exploration as to whether or not there's other groups who can be beneficial in some kind of an ecosystem setup. Like for for example, for us, we're not looking at going greenfield into Kenya. Mm -hmm. We're looking at the sort of partnerships that we can create with larger companies who have an established presence, who are local. We would never replicate that work. That's not what we've been doing for a decade. Mm -hmm. But where there's other groups that can snap on to the complexes that we're putting down in terms of associated services, beautiful, if it can work Mm -hmm. in a business context. Sure. And you could imagine situations where it could, an agriculture school where the students can do a work study or whatever. Well, and I was curious, too, about the shipping containers themselves, because having worked in Africa myself, you know, you actually see a lot of containers. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, they go over full. And it's really expensive to ship them back, and they'd be empty oftentimes yes. anyway. So, like, sort of that supply is there. But I'm also thinking of the the logistics yeah. of having to run an international corporation, which is sort of asset heavy Indeed. potentially. So, how how do you think about that? Sure, I think we have to be very careful and pick the country that we're going to focus on very carefully, and not spread our interest too thin. And this comes right through to. Which executives are we hiring in the company? Do they have family in Kenya? Uh, have they have they lived there for a decade? Do they understand what's going on? Mm-hmm. Is it not going to be culture shock when they go back? We're literally building a presence in that country. And so I don't want to be in five countries anytime soon. I think we want to pick the second country very carefully and make sure the partnerships are there. Then it comes down to where do we build the containers? How do they get there? You know, we're talking to the world's largest shipping lines for moving containers around. To them, moving 1,000 containers is is not a thought when their boats yeah. carry 15,000 containers. And so whether or not we can use local supply, not sure. We tend to insulate the containers very heavily to put up with such climactic mm-hmm. extremes. All this is to be thought through carefully and as a part of that 12 to 16 months of just thinking through it. Where do we build them? Do we build them in Morocco? Do we build them in China? You know, how do we get them there? Mm-hmm. How far are they shipping? How much did that cost? Never mind the durability factor, making them tougher than we've ever made them. And so all the supply chain, Nick, needs to be thought through carefully. I trust that we can do that. I've also seen a number of technology-based sustainability companies go broke trying to be in too many zip codes. So there's there is a there's a, a carcass by the side of the road in the form of a shipping container based mm-hmm. indoor ag company who failed because they spread too fast to too many jurisdictions. Uh, they had 200 employees at the time. They were doing great. They were backed by at least 20 million, and they spread to three countries and they couldn't service those obligations and they got torn apart. And that was that. So that cautionary tale is always in my mind. Yeah, and I'm I'm struck too. Um, so sort of staying in your lane, not having the five different fronts as an entrepreneur you're going to tackle. Um, You've got a lot of logistics and supply chain issues to think through, too. Um, Some of our work we've looked at, and I I think this is especially prevalent in in the sustainability literature, sort of the scope of influence, like what you control as an entrepreneur when you think about sustainability issues. And if you go, you protract that out through the supply chain, how are you thinking about where sustainability or social impact kind of shows up throughout your entire business? Indeed. So, I tend to, if it's not right inside of the core, uh, which is to say our technology, how it performs, how much electricity goes into it, how much water. Like Once we're outside of my cost of goods sold writ large for the farm and where did the components come from, if I can afford it, if it's, e- if it's easy enough to get and it's not too much of a premium, then I'll, I'll put my thinking on it. But because I know how, how rare these moments are and and how how much we need to deliver how fast based on the capital that we've taken in and the commitments we've made i tend not to dwell on those things uh very long 
I'll put some thinking into it, what I feel to be a reasonable amount of thinking, or I'll staff up a certain problem, but I don't go too far into other people's supply chains. I don't feel like we can afford that. I look forward to the day when the company's big enough that we can push on our vendors and suppliers, because I've also seen indoor farming companies go broke by trying to vertically integrate. They became the LED manufacturer, they became the blower yeah. manufacturer, yep. and then they died. And so I, I, I've seen that too. And I would like, I would love to see all these supply chains green up. That's important to me. And uh, when we can exert pressure on vendors, we will. But I also don't want to take my eye off the ball, which is the core of what we do. So we've got a couple minutes left, and I want to give some advice, some explicit advice um, to our entrepreneurial listeners. Mm -hmm. um, I'm yes. struck. As the Nazarian Social Innovator in Residence, this is what you're also here to do. So yes. now we get to Meet impart with it students on. students and, and <laughs> yeah. share your knowledge with them. Yeah, so we'll, we'll give a few nuggets to the listeners. Um, you know, one thing that I'm struck by, Joey, is how much you're keeping a pulse on your peers and sort of similar organizations, yeah. successes and failures, and learning from those. We've seen so many entrepreneurs who are, I mean, it's a, you know, eight day a week job. Yeah. They can get co totally sort of caught up in their activity. And you seem to have the benefit of, you know, looking at peers. Tell us how you do that and then give us any other sort of top advice for entrepreneurs. Yeah, you got it. <clears throat> I think that looking at the field is crucial. The, the ways that I do it, first things first, I've been at this for five and a half years. So I've programmed my crowds to whenever they read anything about mm -hmm. indoor farming, it's automatically coming at me. That's that's a given. And and typically by the, the time that somebody's heard about it, I've heard about it eight times. It just happens. You program your friends. Mm -hmm. They know what you're up to. Everybody's reading a lot of the same sources. Some people are reading interesting sources mm -hmm. that you would never get your hands on. Those are the cool things. Beyond that, because I know the names of the companies, I'm constantly tracking them on, whether it be Twitter or whether, wherever they're posting, some yep. of them post on Instagram, then a step further is uh, we just went to a massive produce trade show in Berlin. It's a global fresh produce trade show with thousands of exhibitors and 90,000 attendees. And it gave me this, again, this just this cross-sectional analysis of the global produce game. So I found that I was getting um, too focused on my literal direct competitors, mm -hmm. and I wasn't looking enough at the global industry. To, to zoom back and look at the global industry was to remember how small all of the fish are. No matter if they've raised a billion or not, they're tiny in mm -hmm. the ecosystem, and that was very valuable. But it was very cool to hear about my competitors from the view of these century-old Italian produce companies yeah. and these century-old Spanish produce companies saying, oh, those companies? We kind of think they're funny. Or, or they'll say, yeah, that looks really expensive to me. Mm -hmm. and, and so that was really neat. And I'd say last but not yeah. least, our investors are connected. Our investors are on the pulse. They're seeing pitch decks every week about yeah. potential competitors to us or component makers. So that's another another great source is the investors. Well, thanks so much. That is terrific advice, I think, for our listeners and all those aspiring entrepreneurs out there. Thanks so much. We've been speaking with Joey Hundert, founder and CEO of Sustainatech and WSII's Nazarian Social Innovator in Residence. Thanks so much for joining us. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com and be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio132 and at Wharton Social. Once again, a special thank you to our guests and our listeners. I'm Nick Ashburn with Sandy Hunt. You've been listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.